It's just had nothing to do with anything except that was his uh I think that was his sixteenth jump and he's uh uh been in jump master school and uh had an exam they call it JMPI where you're up in the aircraft. It, there's probably 80 paratroopers and your trainers, and they're screaming and yelling at you. And they, you have five minutes to inspect three paratroopers. You start from here and you go down. Everything's by army regulation, and you have to you have to know all this stuff. And the trainers sabotage it. They'll put they'll unhook something or tangle up something. And the and the guy who wants to be the jump master who's being tested, you have to find it. Otherwise, a guy can jump and he's not correctly whatever they do, and it could be hazardous to, to the person's health. So anyway, <laughs> half of the guys in the school, this is one that you fail. It's a 50% failure rate, and it's no big shame. You just repeat it. Anyway, my boy passed the thing. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he uh, in fact, when we were visiting with him, he took us to Airborne Special Operations Museum at Fayetteville, uh, North Carolina, and they had a demonstration uh, a mannequin of a paratrooper being um, uh, um, evaluated by a jump master, and he looked at the the um, lines or the webbing, whatever they do, and he said, that is wrong. And he starts taking apart the parachute on the mannequin in the middle of this museum <laughs> and rigs it all up. Yeah, really bad. Uh, unbridled, his mother's influence for sure. Uh, so he has one final test, pass the hard stuff, this one final test. You're in the aircraft. You bark out the orders to the guys when you're supposed to look at the ground and see if there are railroad tracks and all this stuff. You poke your head out and you tell the guys when to jump. So they're there 3 o'clock in the morning, about uh, 70 paratroopers ready to go, suited up. Uh, and then here comes the Air Force from uh, Pope. used to be Pope Air Force Base. Now it's Army Airfield. And it's a C-130, and and here they go, and then they hear the engine spreader conks out. Three o'clock in the morning, guys who've gone through this fairly grueling school, ready to go. This is the last test. Can't do it because the uh, there was a malfunction in the uh, aircraft. You should hear what these army guys say about the Air Force. It is it is terrible. I apologize to all of you who served. So anyway, he couldn't finish the deal. But they're flying into Fort Polk, Louisiana, here in a couple of weeks, thousands of them from Fort Bragg. They're going to drop in for 30 days, and they're going to simulate what they're going to do because they're getting deployed to Afghanistan. They set up conditions like it'll be, and they're thinking the Army might authorize them to finish this last phase. They're in the aircraft anyway. Hopefully it'll work. And uh, so anyway, he might might pass. And that makes him a jump master which means nothing. It means bragging rights, and that's what they, that's what they do. Anyway, uh, that's my boy. <laughs> okay, so let's pray, and we'll go, we'll go home. We have no more time. <laughs> no more time. <laughs> Great to see a number of people. Um, Brother Chuck went to, uh, to visit. Uh, a uh, beautiful baby in the hospital today. Who there was some serious concerns, and there are grandparents there, the Veltmans, and uh, um, and and a marvelous report. Things are are much much better for this little cute one called Brooklyn, and so we are really grateful, and I know you are as well. And 
uh, Chuck, just a great guy, early in the morning went. And then here's our brother here, who is back after a long time, has had uh, very uh, serious um, intervention for his condition and got a wonderful diagnosis of being in complete remission. And so that is wonderful weakened because of the treatments for sure, but it looks like they have by God's grace worked and so we're grateful to see you here. And then there's Pam and Pam's daddy uh, just went home to be with the Lord in the last few days and we are glad to see you, dear sister, and uh, praying for you and and uh, glad about your your dad's eternal situation. We're just glad about that. Glad to have you here. Now I see Robert and uh, Buddy over there. You forgive me for going from thing to thing, but it's a wonderful. Everyone here has a, a story, wonderful story. These guys have a great story. They're uh, members of uh, a Health Fighters uh, organization. Robert is the president. And this year will be the celebration of the Southeast Houston chapter, the second year birthday. The organization's been in existence about 13 years. And their national president will be here on January the 6th. Did I get that right, Robert? Which is a Friday night. It'll be in the hall. You can come. You have to obtain a ticket, which are available in the foyer. There'll be a worship time. Eric Harding will lead. And you'll hear from their national president and others, and it's a great celebration. Uh, these guys have had many challenges because they're a threat uh, to the evil one who doesn't like what they do. The Lord does, and he has and will continue to give victory. Anyway, if you would like to come and show your support, that's January 6th, second birthday celebration for Hellfighters. And thank you guys for doing what you're doing. We love you guys. And uh, we love uh, to see the transforming work the Lord has wrought in your lives. Absolutely wonderful. Is there anything else I should uh, point out or mention in the few minutes we have remaining? You know, yes, Billy. Yes, I can't do that. If you paid attention, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy already did that. Billy, it wouldn't kill you to pay attention once in a while. And now, Billy, now I know exactly how Kim feels. Exactly. No. All right. Well, you know, Christmas Eve, 2, 4, and 6. 2, 4, and 6. Identical services, candlelight, very beautiful. We'll sing uh, Christmas carols and dress uh, in Christmas sweaters and all that. 2, 4, and 6. And then <laughs> special attention for poor Billy. Okay. Hey, have you heard of the transfiguration? Transfiguration. This is one of Brother Chuck's favorite passages of Scripture. But the Lord loves me more, so he let me <laughs> teach you. I'm just kidding. Uh, Brother Chuck has really been struck by this passage over the years as he has studied it, and I hope you will be as well. It's a marvelous, marvelous episode in the life of the Lord, and we read about it here in Luke chapter 9 is where we are. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. It's called the transfiguration, which means transformation or metamorphosis, if you've ever heard that word, transfiguration. Uh, so Luke 9, 
28, this word begins, let me read, some eight days after these sayings. Let me just as a sidelight anticipate what maybe some uh, are thinking about. This account of the transfiguration is repeated by Matthew and Mark as well as Luke. If you read the parallel accounts of this in Matthew and Mark, you will see an apparent discrepancy. Uh, because Luke says this event took place eight days after, but Matthew and Mark's account says six days after what preceded. On this basis, certain critics of the Bible say, see, it's in error. Uh, those are people who, who don't know what they're talking uh, about. Uh, first of all, it's very, very likely that Luke's eight days rather than six are based on this. He counted as day one, the day of the Lord's teaching in the prior episode, six days, and then the eighth was the day of the transfiguration. It's possible. Also, something about Luke's record. He's not that concerned about the order of chronological events. There are many times in here where what should take place, what should be recorded first is recorded second because Luke's purpose is not the chronology of the events but that the events took place and prove that Jesus is who he says he is. Also, Luke's gospel says about eight days. You see, he's not concerned about chronological precision. He's concerned about persuading Theophilus, this dignitary with whom Luke's gospel begins, and all the rest of us, that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the, the Christ of God who has come to suffer and die for sins. So eight days after these sayings, what sayings? Well, if you look back, and we looked at it last week, the Lord took his inner circle of disciples uh, to a place called Caesarea Philippi, the northernmost city of his ministry at the base of um, uh, Mount Hermon. And he said to them, who do people say I am? They gave the popular answers. He said, who do you say I am? Peter answered for the group and said, you are Christ, the son of God. The Lord said, you are correct. Looked like Peter had it scoped out, but didn't. He knew that Jesus was Messiah, but he didn't know the role of Messiah. He thought he would be a political savior to rid the people of Roman oppression. But then the Lord said, the Son of God must suffer and die. So this was quite new to the disciples. Oh, my. They looked to a victorious kind of a military leader. But that's, Rome was not the enemy. The enemy was sin within he came to liberate us from the penalty of sin. Well, now they're quite discouraged, as you can imagine. They had long anticipated that the coming Messiah would come, beat up on the Romans for them, and that they would be a free people. The Lord said, no, in fact, I'm going to be beaten up in a severe way. I'll suffer and I'll be crucified. So to lift up their spirits and to show them, oh, this is just what comes first, He's going to give them a marvelous glimpse into his coming glory. That's the transfiguration. In so doing, he's going to show them what things will be like. He's going to say, this is what they are now. It's rough. 
for him and for those who follow him. But do not despair. It will not always be that way. First, the going down and then the rising up into glory. And that's the way it is for all of God's people, by the way. First, the humiliation, the dying to self. If you will follow me, remember the Lord said, take up your cross and bear it, deny yourself. First that, and then at the establishment of his earthly kingdom, great, great glory. So now uh, we read, he took along Peter, James, and John. He had the 12. They were drawn in closer than most. And then within the 12, an even more intimate inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. He took them and went up on the mountain to pray. Some say the mount is Mount Tabor. Could be. But I think the more likely location, and this is not a big deal if you differ from me, that's okay. I think it's Mount Hermon because Caesarea Philippi is nowhere near Mount Tabor, which is south. It's much closer to Mount Hermon. Also, Mark and Matthew call this a high mountain, and Mount Tabor is not that high. It's only about 1,800 feet, but Mount Hermon is closer to 10,000 feet. In fact, uh, there's, in the winter, there's snow on the top of Mount Hermon. You could actually ski Mount Hermon in Israel. It's quite an interesting image, <laughs> but it's true. Anyway, uh, probably it was on Mount Hermon, and he went up to pray. One of the hallmarks of Luke's gospel, perhaps you've noticed it already, is that he's often portraying the Lord praying to the Father. And while he was praying, in the process of praying, it says, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. It was a whiteness out of this world. It was a symbol of his personal sinlessness and purity. It was a glimpse into his unmasked deity, shrouded in flesh, the babe born in Bethlehem, grew to be the Jesus Yeshua, who is the God-man, but here they saw him as God. And so there is brightness, and his face became different and gleaming, and behold, two men were talking with him, and we don't have to guess about their identities. We're told they were Moses and Elijah. Why those two? Would you like to venture a guess? Who said that? Billy, you are correct. The, uh, uh, Ms. Marjorie said the law and the prophets. So Moses represented the law, did he not? Remember on Mount Sinai, he came down with the law. And Elijah represented the prophets. What we're going to see is that... Uh, um, all the scripture, all the law, and all the prophets point to this Jesus, the Messiah. Everything is focused upon him. Now Moses, can you tell me where Moses and Elijah are buried? Have you been to their grave sites? Any monuments? To See, we don't know. We know that Moses only saw but did not enter into the promised land, and he saw it from Mount Nebo, and somewhere there the Lord buried him. But we don't know where. And Elijah, where is he buried? He was just translated, wasn't he? 
So that's what's interesting. Um, you, one might question their whereabouts because they were human, weren't they? Moses made mistakes, didn't No, let me not clean it up. Moses sinned, didn't he? So did Elijah. I got to tell you, they're people just like we are. But now you see these very flawed and sinful human beings whose physical burial nobody witnessed. Now the question of where they are is laid to rest because now we see them, though they be flawed and sinful human beings, alive, resurrected, and in the very company of the Lord Jesus, having personal conversation and communion with him. Can you imagine how encouraging this would be to the disciples because they're going to die also. They're going to die for the faith. They're going to be persecuted by haters of the Lord Jesus and so on. And they're going to wonder, where are you, God? Is this our lot in life? And he's going to say, no, it's only temporary. You'll be alive from death because he has won victory over it. What about our sin? Yeah, I won victory over your sin. Your sin can't keep you out of heaven. It's just your rejection of me that can keep you out of heaven. So this is a foretaste of what their experience will be. They will be, no matter what happens to them here on earth, one day resurrected in in the same sense in the presence of the Lord Jesus having communion with him. Moses was gone 1,400 years at this point. Elijah, 900 years. Here they are in that day, resurrected with the Lord. So that's quite a blast of encouragement for these disciples who are, isn't this encouraging how they don't understand everything all at once? Neither do we. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is a learner. So don't beat yourself up. If some of these truths of the faith are a little hard to grasp, they are for me too. We're all growing. We're all growing. So then it says, verse 31, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah are conversing with the Lord Jesus about this subject, his departure from Jerusalem. It is a reference to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. They're speaking to him of that. How do they know of it? Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. The sum total of law and prophets tells us about the coming Messiah, about his suffering, about his dying, about his ultimate victory. They're speaking to him about his departure. By the way, the Greek word underlying that word is the word exodus. They're speaking to him of his exodus. It's a uh, fulfillment of the first exodus led by Moses. Moses led the people in an exodus from bondage to a cruel taskmaster in Egypt. But the Lord Jesus is far greater. He's going to lead a departure in exodus, not from a cruel political entity, but from mastery of us by our own sin. This through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, somebody had their hand up, and thank you for being patient. Yeah, Billy. That is a great question. It was asked in the prior class as well. In case you didn't hear, uh, Billy was wondering, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know. Does anyone have any thoughts? Yeah, Don? Yeah, Don? 
Oh, boy, that is great insight. Did you get that, Billy? That is excellent, Don. Now, in the next hour, I just need to go on record. I'm going to steal what you just said. I'm going to take full credit for it. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Yes, ma'am. Same recognition. So you you think Don is on to something. Yeah, I do too. Wonderful. We've missed you. Where have you been? I know it. (laughs) We are left with unanswered questions. Now that you're here, we chuck off one. Blessings to see you. And that is just such a good, helpful insight. So uh, they're speaking of his departure. Look, what he was about to accomplish where? Jerusalem. Do you know that place is mentioned in excess of 700 times in the Bible? Would you like to guess how many times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran? Zero. So the Islamic claim on Jerusalem is unusual because the Quran doesn't point to it. Why the Islamic claim... Um, do you know the Jews in the land disprove the Quran? Did you know this? See, the Quran teaches that the Jews and then the people to follow them, Christians, are forsaken people. The Quran admits that promises have been given to the Jews and then to Christians, but that both people groups forfeited the promises for they have disobeyed. So God raised up Allah's chief prophet, Muhammad, in the new religion, Islam, to replace Jews and Christians. The Quran teaches that all the promises given to them have now been transferred to those who yield to Muhammad. By the way, that's what Islam means. It means surrender. Islam means, Arabic word means surrender. Those who yield to um, Muhammad now inherit the promises. But if you go to Israel today, it doesn't look like the residents of the land have been forsaken. Since 1948, they turned mosquito-infested swamp land into one of the world's most progressive, industrious, and profitable nations. Dinky piece of real estate, thriving. This is not because of anything inherently, in my opinion, so special about the Jews. It's because God has chosen to bless them. Simple as that. So you got to get the Jews out of the land because the Jews and their existence fly in the face of the teaching of the Quran. Uh, Quran doesn't look like they've been forsaken. It looks like they're profiting. That's why they have to be driven into the sea. That's why there will be no peace in the Middle East until this transfigured Jesus returns. That's why all man-made human solutions will fall short. That's why land for peace is a mistake. That's why negotiation with those who don't recognize your right to exist is a mistake. That's why our president's policies are um, bewilderingly off target. 
in fairness to him, you can only see this through spiritual eyes. so, 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 so Jerusalem's a key place and you're seeing a realignment of nations once again, um, building up as over against Jerusalem. The Arab Spring, it's called, is a phenomenal event in our day. Uh, uh, revolution in, um, Egypt and Syria and Yemen and Libya and on and on, in replacement of some terribly cruel dictators, uh, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, or Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, looks like a good thing, but it isn't. Uh, they've been replaced by much more radical, unrestrained elements whose very publicly stated intent is not only to drive Israel into the sea, but to exterminate the world of the vermin known as Jews. So this is happening again. You have Iran... Um, arming um, Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, sneaking arms now much with less restraint into Gaza. Um, You have Turkey, a so-called moderate state, turning much more aggressively against um, uh, Israel. You you have Wall Street occupiers who think it's, it's Jews who have the purse strings of the nations. We've heard this already a million times. You, you, you have a president's policy, which is the most anti-Israel in the history of human con- uh, modern uh, politicians. Um, you, you have the changing face of Europe, which is I- becoming increasingly influenced by Sharia, Muslim law. Um, you have Russia um, um, on the rise uh, again, uh, I- I- back to its own ways. You have China, who owns a good portion of our country, um, uh, a very anti-Israel, anti-American. Um, you, you have Russians and Chinese supplying Iran and back and forth. I mean, it's just a very fascinating juxtaposition of world's nations. On top of it, you have Christians who are embracing um, something called replacement theology, which is just the teaching of the Quran, and that is that God has replaced Israel. No longer do they have a right to the land, for they have disobeyed God, and God has replaced them with the church. The church, we are Israel now. No longer does God have a plan in Jerusalem and for Israel. So on and on and on. It's bewildering, and in a way, hope you don't think I'm weird, exciting, because it has to be this way. It has to be this way. The scriptures tell us about it in advance. I only tell you this because someone recently told me, Stuart, you talk too much about Jewish things, Middle East and Jerusalem. Well, um, I didn't bring this up. It's right there. It doesn't say he, his departure, which he was to accomplish at Rome, in London, in New York City. It says Jerusalem. It says Jerusalem. So uh, argue with the Lord. <laughs> it is his focus of attention. And by the way, you will be there when the transfigured Lord returns. Okay, so Peter, verse 32, and his companions had been overcome with sleep. What? You're talking about literally a mountaintop experience. What? 
the Lord is pulling back his humanity for a second, giving them a glimpse into his unbridled divinity. What? They're sleeping. By the way, it seems to be a pattern with these guys. Garden of Gethsemane, remember that? Couldn't you stay awake? Look, here's the deal. They can't. You know why? They're human. And you know what humans occupy? Bodies. And bodies are a blessing. But they have limitations. Our physical bodies are prone to drowsiness and sleep. There's evidence in this room. (laughs) Our bodies are prone to hunger. Our bodies are prone to aging and disease. Do you know what we're going to need, folks? We're going to need our physical makeup to be um, altered before we can fully enjoy the glories of heaven. See, they could not fully enter into enjoyment of the glory about to reveal, be revealed to them because I'm not criticizing them. They're just like you and I. They were tired. See, in order for us to behold the full, total glories of heaven, we're going to need new bodies, and that's just what we're going to get. Hang in there. Chemotherapy and all the rest, not so easy. Just for a while. Aging, not so easy. This wonderful gal who sang in our last class who fell and she could hardly walk as we noticed as she went down. Um, You know, all of these things that distract us from entering into the full glory of the Lord, he knows that. We're going to get new bodies. Just just wait. So anyway, um, they were overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, booths they're called, or Sukkot, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Uh, not realizing what he was saying. What was wrong with what he said? It looks on the surface to be pretty good. Why was? How did Peter miss the point, Charlie? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, let's make up three monuments, places of worship for all three as if they're in the same category and are on an equal footing. But no, um, Moses uh, and the law pointed to Jesus. Elijah and the prophets pointed to Jesus. And Jesus alone is categorically different. Don, did you have your hand up? Well said. Listen to me. The mountaintop experience was so delightful. I don't think he wanted to go back down to the valley. (laughs) It's rough down there. And Peter is us. Same thing. And aren't there rich mountaintop experiences in the Christian life? Peaked experiences. Sometimes it's a church service. Sometimes it's your personal communion with the Lord where you're just so delighted and exhilarated by a spiritual blessing. But just as real as are those mountaintop experiences for the Christian this side of heaven, so too is the valley part of our experience. 
And you have many ministers, preachers in different places who would persuade us we need not be in the valley. Yeah, we have to come down from the mountain. And we have to be in the valley where the rest of humanity is, where proclamation of the gospel is supposed to take place, where pruning and sharpening takes place, where we share in the Lord's sufferings. That's just the way it is. Charlie? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Integrity issue with God. Well said. Yes, Miss Marjorie. Miss mm. uh, Marjorie said it's in the valley where victories are won and lessons are taught. Uh, so it takes both, doesn't it? Absolutely well said. Listen, just as a sidelight, I've, I uh, was remiss. I thought I saw Tracy. Is Tracy Davis? Oh, he did? Okay. It, it, Tracy's dad passed away uh, just a few days ago uh, as as well. I guess many of, many of you know, but okay. All right. So um, um, he doesn't get it. He, think, he wants to prolong the mountaintop experience an unduly long time, and he's put these three personages on the same footing, which is not accurate. So while he was saying this, verse 34, a cloud formed, and began to overshadow them. By the way, did you know every element in creation order is subject to the will of God? But us. God said, cloud, I command you into service. Cloud says, yes, sir. God said, people who I've created in my own image walk this way. We say, no, sir. Interesting. You see how patient God is with us? To give us a chance. So anyway, he enlists the cloud into his service. It forms, it begins to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Have you heard anything like that before? And what was the occasion? And Ms. Marjorie said, Matthew 3.17, at Jesus' baptism, also a voice from on a high saying, this is my beloved son with whom I will. It's the same voice. It's the Lord's father from the cloud. This is my beloved son. There's Moses. He's a voice. He represents the law, but he just points to the Lord Jesus. There's Elijah. He had a voice. 
He represents the prophets, but he just points to the Lord Jesus. Now that they have pointed you to him, listen to him. See the phrase there? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You notice it doesn't say look at him. It says listen to him. Why? They had the most marvelous and sensational look into the unmasked divinity of the Lord Jesus. But the father was saying, this is simply to confirm in your mind how important it is for you to listen to him. I've only given you a look into his true nature so that you would truly obey what he says. So once again, this dramatic supernatural experience was meant to corroborate the word of God. We have not all been to the Mount of Transfiguration, but we all can listen to Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So the Lord said, I will give you hope. These things which I told you must befall me and you on earth. Don't fall into despair. It's for a while. And this is the reality. The unmasked glory which was mine with the Father before I was enfleshed. And the unmasked glory which I will share with the Father in the end is what you will share in as well. You're in between the parentheses of the first coming and the second coming. And it's rough in various respects for all of us. And I think the Lord is saying, be hopeful. It's temporary. And what I have for you will be worth it all. Now, I just want to... Uh, impose upon you for two or three more minutes uh, and direct your attention to a passage you perhaps are familiar with, but I think will appreciate more in light of the transfiguration account. It's in Second Peter chapter 1, just a few verses, and we'll close with it. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 16, and if it's Second Peter, then who is the author of it? Uh, Peter. And so uh, you need to know it's the same Peter who was there with James and John at the Mount of Transfiguration. He wrote Second Peter after that event, and I want you to see how it impacted on him. So Second Peter 1, verse 16, for we, Peter writes, but there was more than him, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. We didn't make up things about this Jesus. It's not Greek mythology. No, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I believe that is a reference to the transfiguration. I think you will agree as we go on. For verse 17, when he received glory, honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This 
is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. See, that was the voice they heard from the cloud. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration was an unforgettable experience with lasting impact on Peter, James, and John. We heard this voice said he when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so, he says, we have the prophetic word. That phrase, the prophetic word, is a reference to the law and the prophets contained in what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament then because that's all they had, the Bible. So that's called the prophetic word. He said, now we have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. We have this prophetic word, the law and the prophets, in other words, all of the Old Testament, but now we have it more corroborated, more authenticated, more substantiated because we saw the one the law and the prophets point to. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. We saw this Jesus. He's more than the carpenter's son. We saw his humanity for a short time pulled back. We saw his divinity revealed. Therefore, pay attention to the word. You see, they're just saying what the voice in the cloud said. Listen. And Peter is saying, indeed, listen, listen to his word as if it's a lamp shining in a dark place. Would you like to know what the dark place is that Peter is referring to? It's this place. It's the world in which we live prior to the Lord's return. It is a dark place. Probably you agree. It's unbelievably, increasingly dark politically economically, morally. I mean, the prime minister of England said the other day, Cameron said the other day, this is just a paraphrase, but he said something like this. We are in the midst of the slow paralysis of moral decay. He's right. It's a dark place. Why? Because Almighty God, for a spell, is allowing the prince of darkness, just for a spell, to have his way. Peter says, therefore, let his words illuminate your journey while in this dark place. Let what Jesus said, let what's said about Jesus, the prophetic word, be unto you like a lamp in a dark place. In other words, let it light your steps and inform your paths, not the ways of the world. And you only have to do this until the day dawns. That is a reference to the second coming of the Lord. And the morning star, that is a reference to the Lord. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. See the phrase morning star? It comes from our word for phosphorus. Jesus said, I'm the light bearer. I am the 
light producer. So Peter is saying, pay attention to the word of God as a lamp shining in a dark place only until the day dawns and he, Jesus, arises in your hearts. What does that mean? He's already in your heart if you're a Christian. But folks, when you see him at his second coming face to face, something is going to happen in your heart. He's already there. But just imagine it when you see him. Your heart will be filled with overwhelming joy and gratitude. In an instant, your heart and your mind will cease plaguing you with these two questions. Why, God? And how long, God? You will no longer need to beseech him for answers to those questions. In an instant, it will all make sense. Everything you've experienced and questioned God about suddenly will make sense. You'll be transformed. You will see him in his unmasked deity. And so the Lord Jesus is simply saying, it is pretty rough. And nobody should minimize your individual pain or mine or your grieving or mine. Nobody has a right to tell us, get over it or don't feel that way. But we just have the marvelous privilege of knowing it's all passing. It's all temporary. And the Bible tells us what God has in store for us is way beyond anything we can think or imagine. Uh, endure as he endured for a little while, and it is the way of the cross. First the cross, then the crown. And when we enter into the era of the crown, I tell you, it will be worth it all. You can have a great Christmas, and so could I. <laughs> when remember that, when we remember that the first coming of the Lord accomplished the objective, he came as the sacrificial lamb, a beautiful, inviting baby to grow. Uh, to the point when he was persecuted and executed for you and I. But the second coming will see him as Lion of Judah. You will not be devoured by him the second time if you have welcomed him into your heart the first time. I hope this Christmas doesn't pass you by. I hope you realize you came, oh God, in the most innocent, vulnerable, helpless, and non-threatening form, so that one such as me, at odds with you, could be at peace with you. The babe was born to die for me. And he did, and rose up from death. And I look forward to his second coming. I don't fear it. I hope that's the case with you. If so, this will truly be, in spite of all else, a very meaningful Christmas. Lord Jesus, thank you beyond what words could express for your inexpressible gift of yourself, crucified, buried, and then resurrected and ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father and soon perhaps returning to rule and reign in glory, dispelling the darkness, making us who love you to be subjects of a marvelous kingdom in which there
There shall no longer be any tears, any death, any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things will have passed away. Thank you for your humiliation. Praise you for your glorification. And thank you for letting us share in it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Merry Christmas to you.